It's always a worry when the preacher comes up and removes the Bible from the lectern, isn't it? It's only because I've got one or two others this morning. I was saying in the vestry beforehand, I feel I ought to start this morning the way I start when I'm preaching at other churches and saying, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, because I have to apologise, um, it's been a number of Sundays before uh, I've been able to worship, having been involved with one or two other churches, etc. You may well need to have your Bible open this morning. Um, I'm approaching this slightly different from the way I would normally do uh, because I've really been uh, directed in that way because of the, the passage of scripture. It's not one I would have jumped to use this morning, um, but it's the, the passage that he set for, for Trinity Sunday and it was one on the list that our minister gave me and said you might want to use one of these. I want to bring you the reading again. Actually, from the New Living Translation, uh, which might just open it up that bit more um, before we unpack it. In the New Living Translation, it reads like this. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of the highest privilege, where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to receiving, uh, to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they're good for us. They help us to learn to endure and endurance develops strength of character in us and character strengthens our confidence and our confident expectation of salvation. And this expectation will not disappoint us for we know how dearly God loved us because he's given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we were utterly helpless... Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, no one's likely to die for a good no one is likely to die for a good person, though someone might be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's judgment. For since we were, re were restored to friendship with God by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be delivered from eternal punishment by his life. Now that we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God, all because of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us, in making us friends of God. They remove the word justification and uh, talk about being right with God. Justification is that God, through Jesus Christ, took our place on the cross. Well, in the space of five verses, this reading for Trinity Sunday mentions God... Christ 
and the Holy Spirit. We read in verse 1, we have peace with God. And this peace, as well as access to the grace, has come through Jesus Christ. In verse 1 and 2 we meant to see that. Moreover, God's love has been poured out into our hearts, we read in verse 5, through the Holy Spirit. The Son gives us access to God's glory and the Spirit pours out God's love for us. And this is a clear picture of the three parts of the Trinity. One God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The reading, however, is something much more than a lesson on the Trinity. It's about the assurance provided by the Gospel, the hope of salvation. You note that this chapter begins with the word therefore. The word therefore is actually used 159 times in the New Testament and nearly 100 of them were used by Paul. And when you come across the word therefore, have you ever wondered what it's there for? It's quite often a bridge, and in this case, it is first of all a bridge between the what of Romans chapters 1 to 4 and the what now in Romans 5 to 8. So what in the previous chapters is Paul referring to in this chapter that we read? Well, in chapter 4, Paul states that the believer is declared righteous through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross by faith in God who raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 25 from the previous chapter, chapter 4, reads in the New Living Translation, he was handed over to die because of our sins and was raised to life to make us right with God. And to make us right with God, Jesus had to suffer and die and then rise from the dead. Why? Well, in order that sin and death will be, uh, may be conquered. How great is God's love for us? That he desires to be in relations with us so much that he would establish a work of the cross so that we can but gain righteousness before God. God did that for us through his son. So far in Romans, up to the chapter that we read, uh, Paul has shown us the need to become right with God back in the first three chapters. He points out all men are sinful and guilty before God. So there's a need to become right and then He shows us the way to become right with God, by grace, through faith, based on the redemptive work of the cross. That's earlier in chapter 3. In chapter 4, we have an illustration of becoming right with God. He goes through an example of Abraham. Key verse there is verse 22 in chapter 4. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. It's interesting that Romans doesn't actually finish at chapter 4. Being right with God is not the religious equivalent of a fairy tale ending. They lived happily ever after. We move on to chapter 5, which begins 
a new section in the book of Romans. And what is noteworthy is that at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, Paul changes from the I, they and you to the first person plural, we. He goes on from this point onwards, we. He's talking as he's amongst us. We're all together. And in chapter 5 here, we have a sequence of the the we affirmations. Paul's now going to tell us about some of the benefits of being right with God. Chapter 1 there, we read, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. That's a benefit of being one in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it may differ from peaceful feelings such as calmness and tranquility. Peace with God means that we have been reconciled with him. There's no more hostility between us and God. No sin blocking our relationship with him. Peace with God is possibly only possible because Jesus paid the price of our sins through the cross. We've gained access through faith into grace, we read in verse 2. Paul states that as believers, we now stand in a place of highest privilege. Not only God has God declared us not guilty, he's drawn us close to himself. We've become his friends. In fact, in John 5 and Galatians 4, we're told that we're not only friends, but we're his own children. And thirdly, we read there in verse 11 of chapter 5, we have received reconciliation. God is holy and he cannot be associated with sin. And everyone has sinned. So everyone is separated from God. All sin deserves punishment, but instead of punishment with death, Christ took our sins. He took our place. He died for us, so that we may be united with our Father. And where did he take our sins? Well, we read in verse 6, just at the right time. We were weak and helpless because we could do nothing, Paul tells us. We could do nothing on our own to save ourselves. Someone had to come and rescue us. And not only did Christ come at a good time in history, but exactly the right time according to God's own schedule. God gets the timing right. His timing is perfect. And because of all these blessings and benefits, there's cause for much confident rejoicing. Well, are we always people who rejoice? Do people see when we go out of church that we're rejoicing because we've been with the Father? That our sins are forgiven because the Lord Jesus Christ died for each one of us. And that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Well, I'll leave that for you to make that decision. So Paul says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God in in verse 2 there. Hope grows as we learn all that God has in mind for us. And it gives us a promise for the future. Paul also goes on to say, we also rejoice in our sufferings. 
It's interesting, but the, not on this chapter particularly, but Lydia just made a comment about something that was mentioned on that in the Bible by the beach. I think we need to realise that suffering was more the norm in the days that this was written, rather than the exception. And I actually do prefer the NL, uh, the New Living Translation of this, when it, it says, uh, we also rejoice when we run into problems and trials, the everyday issues. We rejoice at these times, not because we like our difficulties, because we know God is using life's difficulties to build our character. I wonder what you're sitting there thinking. And I remind you, the words I'm speaking here are the words that Paul speaks. Because I realise it can be very difficult, very hard to live through these situations. We do have the confidence that God is in control. God loves us. God cares for us. And Paul goes on to say, we also rejoice in our new relationship with God. Through faith in Christ's work, we become close to God, friends of God, rather than being enemies. And through these statements, Paul identifies himself with all those who have been made right with God by faith. Justified, as he says. Jew or Gentile, you or me. Paul emphasises in this chapter that there is unity among the people of God. Not the unity of all getting along together, but that would be nice. But the unity we have in Christ. In his book on Romans, John Stott, the, who was rector of All Souls Langham Place for many years, gives the chapter the title, People United in Christ. Well, I've almost given it the same title. I've called it All Singing from the Same Hymn Sheet. And that's what we need to be doing. All one in Christ. All singing. On the same hymn sheet. Currently the elders have been looking at our relationships within the church. Not just the getting on with each other relationships. But how we work out our faith and ministry together as we serve the Lord here in Linfield. How we can develop our relationship with God and hence our relationship with each other. In fact, we started looking at this back when we uh, had our annual meeting last November. And we will be looking at it right through to our church away weekend in June next year. Like all relatively largest churches, we're not large by any means, but we've got a reasonable number of people. I was at a meeting this week where somebody asked the speaker about a large church. And he said, well, yeah, well, a large church is any church over 5,000 people. So everybody there suddenly would thought, oh, I'm in a big church, suddenly thought, oh, dear, our church needs to grow a bit. I'm not sure I would agree with the speaker on that, but that's, that, was, uh, that was the line he threw out. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we gathered the, the leaders of groups and, and some individuals that have specific roles in the life of the church. We gathered them together, elders and them, first of all, so that we could say thank you for their commitment 
and start this thinking on the building of relationships. Is what we do in the life of the church, perhaps mainly during the week, but not always, influenced by what takes place in worship? Do we feel part of the same team? In some roles, it's easier to identify with this than others, depending on what you may be involved in. Do we get excited by the sort of message we have from Paul? Do we unite in all we do? Meeting I just mentioned earlier this week, it was actually a Sussex Gospel Partnership meeting. And the, um, the speaker was talking about developing leadership. And he mentioned his church at Wimbledon, where he's a senior pastor. From what he said earlier, it's actually just a small church, but I think it's quite large. And they are in fact doing just what we're thinking of getting involved in. Getting people to realise that their ministry is just a bit more than the job they're doing. He actually mentioned door stewards. Well, and I I apologise to Paul this morning before I started, and I apologise to the, the door stewards. I'm just trying to get the difference between chalk and cheese here. But, you know, what does a door steward do? What do you need to be a door steward? Well, you need to have two strong arms, one to give out a hymn book and the other one to shake somebody by the hand. Well, if you're at the second service, you have the opportunity to use both hands together when you bring the offering up. And of course, you're needed if somebody's ill or if there's a fire and we need to evacuate the premises or if someone wants to burst in and wreck the premises during the service. Well, that's all part of your role as a, as a door steward. I know some are just resigning. (laughs) But he was talking about how they train people up in their church and they trained up someone to manage the door stewards. They have about 50. That actually sounds a lot, but even in a church of our size, we need quite a few. And this person was trained up to manage them and his role was a pastor to the door stewards a pastor to the door stewards. And they met together regularly to encourage each other, to pray together, to learn together, to seek what the Lord was asking them to do in their role of work welcoming. And they were doing this with most of the groups within their church. And it's the sort of thing we've been just touching on in the elders. I think actually we... The only time we've ever done anything quite like that was when we first had the new premises and we opened the concourse and we had training sessions for all those who were going to be on the concourse. There were nearly about 40 people who had booked to do that in those days. And then we used to meet together, not ever such a lot, but meet together just to encourage each other. You see, but there can be a lot more to the job that seems just a bit mundane. If we're all united in Christ. You see, we're all involved in the kingdom work. We're all involved in God's work. Whatever we may be involved in, in the life of the church. Are we excited about that? Are we excited about that? As well as the New Living Translation, I actually was looking at the message. I'm not a great lover of the message, but it's interesting what the last verse of chapter 5 reads in the message. It reads this. Now that we have actually received this amazing friendship with God, we're no longer simply content 
to say in plodding prose. We sing and shout our praises to God through Jesus, the Messiah. Well, are we singing and shouting through all we do about Jesus, the Messiah? Let me leave the last words with John Stott. He writes... So from these verses, it seems clear that the major mark of those believers made right with God is joy. Especially joy in God himself. We should be the most positive people in the world. For the new community of Jesus Christ is characterised not by self-centred triumphalism, but by God-centred worship. He was a man who grew a church from nothing to a major evangelical church in London where thousands attend. So we're united in Christ together. We're united in Christ as we meet around the table. So let us come to the table now for our time of communion as we give thanks for what Jesus did for each one of us on the cross.